Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Root and Roots Show on blogtalkradio.com. Now here's your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you the best in music, information, and history. Well, I have an intro now, and I want to thank Janine Santana for that, but we have an intro on the Root and Roots Show, and if you're new to the program, my name is Greg Rashid. And we host this show every Saturday and Friday, well, today's Friday evening at 6 p.m. and also Saturday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And the number here is 424-675-8315. Again, 424-675-8315. And we're going to start the show off because we have a dynamic show, as we usually do, but this is a special show. I'm going to start it off with the music of the impressions. This is from 1967. We're going to do, because it fits the theme of the show, A Choice of Color. So let's hear the impressions, A Choice of Colors on the Root and Root Show. One would you choose, my brothers? If there was no day or night, which would you prefer to be right? How long have you hated your white teacher? Who told you you love your black preacher? Do you respect? Your brother's woman friend And share with black folks Not of kin People Must prove to the people A better day is coming For you and for me With just a little bit more Education And love for our nation would make a better society Now some of us Would rather cuss And make a fuss Than to bring about A little trust But we shall overcome I believe someday If you'll only listen To what I have to say And how long have you had Your white teacher Your black preacher Can you respect Your brother's woman friend And share with black folks Not of kin I say now people Must prove to the people A better day is coming For you and for me With just a little bit more Education And if you had a choice of colors, which one would you choose, my brothers? If there was no day or night, which would you prefer to be right? And if you had a choice of colors, 
Which one would you choose, my brothers? If there was no day or night, which would you prefer to be right? If you had a choice of colors, which one? If you had a choice of colors, and that was the impressions featuring Curtis Mayfield. That's from 1967, A Choice of Colors. And I chose that song because of the theme of the show tonight. And I think, I've been, I have to say, I've been doing radio, some television since 2001, interviewing many folks on many subjects. But I think this is the one subject that it leads to everything that's going on, that's always gone on in the past, I don't know, 10,000 years or so. And I'm talking about, the issue of skin color, and I ha- I'm honored to have on the line right now the distinguished professor of anthropology at the Pennsylvania at Penn State University, and I'm talking about the author of the book *Living Color: The Biological and Social Meaning of Skin Color*. And I have Professor Nina Jablonski on the line right now. Are you there, uh, Professor Jablonski? Yes, yes, I am, Greg. It's great to be with you. Yeah, it's great to have you on here. And I originally I have to tell my listeners, and you can call in by the way at four two four six seven five eight three one five because I already have some questions for you from some listeners. But originally we were going to do this show just before the holiday season, before Christmas. And I and I told Professor Jablonski that this subject is too important to do it then. And I think because of what's been going on with the issues of police, you know, shootings. This is the celebration of the Martin Luther King holiday this weekend and all. And the whole issue of just race in this country, I think it's very important to have someone such as Professor Jablonski on to talk about the issue of skin color and race. And it's so ironic that um, this would, you know, I didn't know, I, I hardly would know about what's going on in the world, but I never knew that all this would be going on now. And I think this is just an appropriate subject to have you on here. And I'm just surprised, and I read a lot, I've interviewed a lot of folks, but this is the first book I've seen, and it's very simple. I mean, it's not a long book that basically describes the whole history of skin color broken down by science, biology, anthropology, and then social, the social aspect of skin color. And I just want to commend you, Professor Jablonski, for writing this book. Well, thanks, Greg. And, you know, I wrote it for just the reasons that you said. There was no book. There was no straightforward set of presentations about this most visible characteristic of our bodies that we pay so much attention to, that has come to have so much social importance and biological importance for us. I just felt that there was a crying need for this book. And so I worked really hard over several years to write a book that could be read easily, that wasn't a thick, ponderous tome that somebody could pick up and say, yeah, I get it, because, you know, this is not rocket science. All of this stuff is easy to understand. And in my opinion, Greg, I think, we really need this. We need this more than ever in this country and elsewhere in the world so that people understand at a very basic level why they look the way they do because that is the basis 
for so much inherent prejudice. So you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I started writing this book, you know, back in 2009. It was published in 2012. I could not have foreseen all of the terrible events of 2014, uh, but the book, as you say, is even more relevant today than it was the day it was published. And why do you think, I'm curious, uh, Professor Jablonski, as you were doing your research, why no book has been written like this in all these years? Well, you know, I think there are a few reasons. First, there was a long period when we really didn't have a good handle on the biology. We didn't understand genuinely why people had the skin colors that they had. I've had the good fortune to do research in this area for about oh, 20 to 25 years now, and I and my colleagues have helped to move knowledge forward in this area. So one of my motivating factors was I wanted to share that information more widely, and I wanted to put it together with the health and social information that was of such critical interest to people. So I think the short answer is everything come together at that that time. We didn't have the knowledge before in order to write such a comprehensive book, but now we do, and now, you know, I really am trying to get this message out to as many people as possible in as highly uh, digestible (laughs) form as possible. Well, I think, again, I just think you've done a great job with this book. And before we get into the book, I, you know, reading your intro, I wanted to know, you know, what made you do this? And I was really fascinated about your background, your family history, and I want you to talk to my listeners a little about you know, your family history. You know, I think this is a little bit of an insight into the whole question of skin color in this country. Because, you know, this is something that we tend not to talk about. Just like the rest of race issues in this country, it is something that's murmured, it's talked about around corners. You rarely hear it in the open, in classrooms, in public fora. And in my family, you know, talking about skin color was a a sensitive subject because we had African ancestry on my mother's side, And my mother and her sisters and brother felt self-conscious about that because when they were growing up as immigrant kids on the west side of Buffalo, you know, it it was... for them, hard to be children of immigrants. And then, you know, to feel that they had what they considered to be another strike against them was really, really tough for them to take. And so I lived for most of, well, for my early adult years, you know, talking to my parents and my aunts and uncles, you know, talking in hushed tones about, you know, my African ancestor. Nobody really wanted to talk about it. And, you know, and I, and I felt that this was, in a sense, sort of a microcosm of nobody wanted to talk about this, nobody wants to talk about it in this in the United States. And yet, when people do start talking about it, when they do start talking about their own heritage and then how this, uh, how our colors came to be, 
all of a sudden a huge amount of tension is released, a huge amount of ignorance is eliminated, and we feel better just by having that little bit of knowledge. And that's what it takes, just talking and just being open-minded about the subject. And listeners, again, you can call in at 424-675-8315. I'm talking to Professor Nina G. Jablonski, the author of the book Living Color, the Biological and Social Meaning of Skin Color. And I have a question. Um, one, of the, one of my listeners wanted to know this. She wanted you to, ask, to discuss the linkage between the pineal gland, melanin, and vitamin D. You get into that in the book. Yeah. Well, you know, the pineal gland um, is not really related to the regulation of skin color or vitamin D, but it is critical for the regulation of our, uh, our daily circadian rhythms. There probably is a... Uh, a distant connection between the function of the pineal gland and the rhythms that it generates and the uh, and vitamin D in our bodies. But it, it is not a direct physiological connection. But I can speak much more directly to the question of <clears throat> melanin and vitamin D because melanin right. is the pigment in the skin that makes our skin dark. So the more melanin you have in your skin, the darker your skin is. And also, melanin is a beautiful natural sunscreen. So the more melanin that you have in your skin, the less the sun can damage your skin and the less ultraviolet radiation can penetrate your skin. Now, that's mostly a very good thing. But you need some UV in order to make vitamin D in your skin. And so the connection between melanin and vitamin D is that high amounts of melanin in the skin, in dark skin, make the production of melanin slower, much slower than in light skin. So even on a sunny day, you're going to make, if you have dark skin, vitamin D at a much slower rate than if you have moderately pigmented or very lightly pigmented skin. So, and until I read your book, I didn't know, you know, I assumed the opposite. Yeah, Not being a yeah. scientist or anything, an anthropologist, I assumed the opposite. And I was really surprised when I read that. Yeah. So, you know, so melanin is just this super great sunscreen. You know, we've got to remember that we all originated in the tropics. Our ancestors are in tropical Africa, equatorial Africa. Our species evolved in Africa. We were there, and our dark melanin pigmentation was inherent, was essential for our survival for hundreds of thousands of years. And it was only in very, very recent times that humans, or relatively recent times, that humans actually began to disperse outside of the African tropics, okay? So modern humans evolved in Africa as darkly pigmented, very well-adapted people to high levels of ultraviolet radiation. As they moved around within Africa toward the extremities of the continent and then as a few populations left Africa, they went into areas with 
less intense sunlight and less intense ultraviolet radiation. And that really was a big change to their physiology. And one of the things that changed and needed to change was the amount of pigmentation in the skin. Because as soon as people started living away from, far away from the equator, the intensity of ultraviolet radiation was much lower and dark sunscreen in the skin screened out too much ultraviolet radiation. And people couldn't make enough vitamin D. Therefore, we evolved, some people evolved anyway, more lightly pigmented skin. So basically, you know, melanin is a sunscreen. It's great under intense sun conditions, but you need to have a little bit of UV get into your skin in order to make vitamin D. And how much vitamin D is enough? Because it's been a hot topic in the last couple of years about folks taking vitamin D. And I think oh, I read somewhere, it might have been in your it might have been in your <laughs> book. No, I think it was before I even read your book that probably ninety percent of folks in this country do not have enough vitamin D. Yeah. I mean vitamin D has become the sort of or one of the major health concerns of the last five years. And, you know, before people weren't talking about it at all. Now every family physician, every blog, every health blog, you name it, is talking about vitamin D. It's hard to say exactly how much an individual needs, but you can take some guidelines here. If you have an indoor job, if you spend most of your time inside, whether going to school or, or staying at home or in a job, if you are not spending very much time outside, even in the summertime, and if you have darkly pigmented skin, almost certainly you are going to be vitamin D deficient. Vitamin D we get from uh, from the sun, from ultraviolet radiation penetrating our skin and making vitamin D in the skin. We can also get it from our diet. But there are very few things that naturally contain very much vitamin D, mostly some oily fish, which isn't commonly eaten. Things like sardines and mackerel, not necessarily on everybody's right. plate. So most people are not getting vitamin D in their diet. So unless you're taking supplements or you're getting some fairly regular sun exposure, then you really need to take some vitamin D supplements. And the amount of supplements sort of depends on your lifestyle. If you're indoors all the time, if you're an older person, then taking vitamin D supplements is probably very, very worthwhile. And the good thing about them is, well, two good things. These days, they're cheap. You can buy a lot of vitamin D uh, cheaply at most supermarkets or health food stores or whatever, and you can't really uh, overdose on vitamin D. Right. Oh, never. Uh, you know, you if you if you take let's say a thousand international units or two thousand or even four thousand international units a day. That's good, and unless you have a rare problem of calcium metabolism, you will not be you will not suffer any adverse consequences because your body is going to immediately deactivate anything that it doesn't need. 
So, you know, taking vitamin D supplements is a safe and cheap and effective way to keep yourself in good health, especially if you live, you know, in dreary northern cities of the United States or if you have an indoor job. And that's the majority of folks actually in this country. And again, listeners, you can call in at yeah, uh, 424-675-8315. We're talking to Professor Nina Jablonski, the author of the book, Living Color, the Biological and Social Meaning of Skin Color. Now, the, I love the beginning of the book, the biological aspects and science, but the crux of the book, I think, is when we get to part two, the society, because that's when everything starts yeah. happening. You talk about the encounters, the first encounters, and just discuss that in particular. Talk about as one, you know, someone I learned about in college, uh, Emmanuel uh, Kant, a uh, Kant. Yes. yes. Talk about well, him and you know, other folks like him. Well, in writing this book and doing the research for this book, I did a lot of you know digging into the history books, philosophy books, uh, all sorts of different books, and. One of the most revealing and disturbing things that I discovered was just how seriously racist some uh, European philosophers were. Now, we know that back in the 18th century, uh, there were a lot of European thinkers who... uh, you know, who thought that European culture was really superior. But Immanuel Kant probably takes the cake uh, in that he really felt that not only was European culture superior, but that people with uh, a broadly European background uh, had the highest capacity for culture and civilization. And Kant was a really interesting figure because he never himself traveled. He was famously, you know, sort of rooted in his own study for most of his life, thinking deep thoughts and having an extensive correspondence and reading a lot. He read a lot of explorers' tales, a lot of travelers' books, and had an extensive correspondence with people who did travel. And what he gained from those people was that outside of Europe, there were people who looked dramatically different, who acted differently, who had very different customs. And Kant, especially as a young man, was trying to make sense about how all this diversity came about. And In short, he thought that a lot of it had to do with people's proximity to the sun and those people who were uh, too intensely affected by the sun, who had very dark skin and, and curly hair, tightly curly hair, would be adversely affected by the sun because it was such an oppressive influence on their bodies and capacity for civilization, whereas those people who lived farther away would have the benefit of you know, literally having a cooler climate and not being so adversely affected. So Kant actually created, through all of these indirect reports from various people, he created 
four groups that he felt adequately summarized the nature of human varieties. So he had four groups, two of which were Europeans and African black people. And interestingly, he did not, in in his hierarchy of races, he did not place African black people in the lowest rung, as did some other philosophers later in time, but he did put them in uh, in a, a sequence, lower in the sequence, in a group that was compromised because of their because of the intense sun exposure. But suffice it to say, Kant had very strong ideas about the supremacy of the European culture, and his philosophical ideas were so well accepted and so widely propagated in Europe that his ideas about race also became very, very popular and widely propagated. And people assumed that because he was such an astute and excellent philosopher, that of course what he must be writing about about the diversity of humans has to be correct. And so much of what he wrote was believed, lock, stock, and barrel, and was propagated. People like Thomas Jefferson and others in in the American colonies, in Europe, read Immanuel Kant and really took it to heart. And this and I is just think where... Professor Dubonsky, unfortunately, it seems like it's his philosophy and the philosophy of others is still out there. From time to time, you hear these statements from someone like a Ted Cruz. You can name some things on Fox, the Fox News Channel. It's yes, still I mean, there. This, this is almost unbelievable that we are still, you know, Immanuel Kant wrote his treatises on human diversity beginning in 1775. What other thinker do we quote you know, verbatim almost, from 1775. As you say, there's there's virtually no one who is believed to this extent. Why we believe it is because the political system in this country and and many other systems, the economic system in the world, favors this interpretation of diversity, and it has favored this interpretation since the transatlantic slave trade. In other words, there have been strong economic reasons for wanting to have the world's diversity ranked in a hierarchy of races and to have some races effectively made to feel and seem less less worthy, less civilized. And this is one of the tremendous tragedies of the modern American system and modern American education is that we have not dissected these old, crusty, worn-out beliefs and shown them and exposed them for what they are. We need to do this. As I say in my public lectures about skin color we invented this archaic and inaccurate 
and burdensome and and terribly unjust system. We created right. this. We can uncreate it. But it has to be done through programs of education, just like the theme song of today's <laughs> of, of today's show said. It is unfortunate that that song, like I said, was it came out in '67, '68, and it's still relevant. Yes, and you isn't know, that a almost tragedy? fifty it's, some years later? And it's sad. It's very sad. Yes. Even a song that you mentioned, and I was going to put it on here. You mentioned that Bessie Smith song that's still relevant today. I was name yes. that song. Um, yellow, what was it? A uh, Young Woman's Blues. Yes, yes, that's right. And she's talking about light-skinned women and how you know that she's better. She's dark-skinned, but she knows that she's better. And yes. it's just you fascinating. Know, just... Go ahead. This is this is all still with us, and it is. It's fascinating and it's tragic both, because. In order for us to move beyond this point of prejudice and ignorance, we need to have more discussions. We need to have better education, beginning with education of our children. And so one of the things that I am really committed to in my life is getting this education out to younger people because although it won't solve all of these problems, it will begin to solve them by providing just a baseline of education about how skin color came to be as it is, how interesting and wondrous and amazing it is, how it is not the cause of of superiority or inferiority, that right. it is not related to other aspects of our character, our behavior, or our intellect, that it is simply something that evolved to protect us from the sun, that's the beginning and the end of it, and let's get on with talking about the rest of human diversity and how we can get along. I mean, that's what that has to be done. And I have to say to my listeners out there, too, that in the book, of Professor Jablonski also talks about other countries, but we're primarily going to talk about the U.S. tonight because there's great chapters about India and just everywhere. I mean, you you did an extensive, wonderful just study of the whole world on the issue of skin color. But I want to ask you, because you get into the whole issue of skin lightening. Yes. And it's yes. a hot thing, I guess, in Ghana and South South Africa, Nigeria. And talk talk about the yeah, whole I mean, brainwashing that yeah, just well, would cause that, someone of color to do that. Well, what's what's fascinating about skin lightening? It's it's a big thing now in much of Africa, and in Afro Caribbean countries, and in in much of the African diaspora. But it started in the United States. Uh, and not surprisingly, you know, during the Reconstruction years, when more and more freed African slaves were moving into northern cities, it was definitely beneficial for them to be lighter. And so we see this, what began as a cottage industry of skin lightening products, become a proper, uh, a proper cosmetics and cosmeceutical, to use a modern term, industry in the United States in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Then, 
it is rapidly exported in the early 20th century, first to South Africa, a country that has felt the scourge of discrimination in, you know, in a tremendously serious way in the middle of the 20th century and still does, and in much of sub-Saharan Africa. Skin lighteners have been popular because lightness has always been considered to be a superior trait, and people with lighter skin are often judged at first meeting to be smarter, more likable, more highly moral, more desirable as marriage partners or as employees, you name it. And so the desire for skin lightening in some markets is insatiable. And again, this is a tragedy, but it has basically been this way in the United States more or less since the end of the Civil War, it continues, skin lighteners continue to be used in the United States. They're no longer referred and, and to. And listeners, if you, if you doubt that, and, you know, as I was reading your book of Professor Jablonski, when I got to the skin lightener uh, aspect chapter of, the, of your book, I went to a grocery store here just to look at the cosmetic yes. area. And there they were. There they are, you know, they're, and they're no longer ne- necessarily, you know, called skin bleaching agents because right. that sounds too coarse. They're called lighteners, brighteners, clarifiers. You know, there's all sorts of euphemisms, but the the effect is still the same. And this is really, really sad because many many people want to use skin lighteners because they feel compelled to and they don't necessarily question that compulsion they just want to have their skin be lighter so that they feel they'll be more accepted that their boyfriend or girlfriend might like them better that they might get on better in a job interview you know whatever and and it is just unfortunate that people feel compelled to lighten their skin. And not only is it sort of socially unfortunate, but from a health perspective, some of these lightening agents can cause permanent damage to the skin and leave the skin... And you have a picture in here that graphically shows that. I mean, really. Yeah, you know, and this is especially some of the illegal agents or... uh, Skin bleaching agents that are used to excess uh, can cause serious irreversible damage that looks really, really bad. In in many parts of Africa where I do work, there are young women who can't afford to buy, you know, sort of good quality, safe lightening agents for their skin. So they go to the black market and they buy illegal preparations, often that have arsenic or lead or mercury in them. Those are incredibly toxic. They cause all sorts of illnesses and they cause severe irreversible blotchiness of the skin. It is just, it, it's just a terrible situation. What I'm really happy about is that more and more darkly pigmented, beautiful African and Indian women are getting in front of TV cameras, these you know celebrities, and saying, don't bleach your skin. Your skin is beautiful as it is. 
also we need, you know, more women who are black and beautiful, who are, you know, dark and gorgeous. And we need more women who are just dark and proud to be dark, to say, right. no, we're not And, and it's out there, it. but it is, it's like you said, the media, it portrays who it wants to portray, and it usually portrays lighter skin, women and men. And But then on the other hand, you talk about also near the end of the book the other aspect of white folks who want to become dark. <laughs> I mean, and that's and I and I had to laugh when I was reading that chapter because you got you know you had the pictures of George Hamilton and all these other folks. But talk a little bit about that. I mean, humans are peculiar animals, right? I mean, and we we have all of these these conflicting agendas going on. The thing that unites both of these things, dark people wanting to be light and light people wanting to be dark, is status. Because in the back of many people's minds when they undertake one of these treatments is, I want to look better so that people will think I belong to a higher status group. And many light-skinned people want to have a tan, want to look darker, so that they look like a tan celebrity, so that they look like they just got back from vacation in Mexico or the Caribbean or whatever. So they look like they have a life of leisure as opposed to a life of toil, you know, in a cubicle or, you know, entering data or in a phone center or, you know, whatever they're doing. So, you know, it's it's interesting the two the two endpoints are different, but the motivation is the same. And I think people always aspire to look like others of higher status. What's fascinating, however, about light people with tanning is that it's okay to be, you know, moderately tanned and to have that fresh-from-vacation look. But many people are sensitive to looking too dark because they don't want to look too dark because then they might be mistaken for people who are discriminated against for being right. dark. You know, so, it, I mean... It, it's so weird. And, and I guess so you got to... And, yeah, and now I guess you have, you know, we were talking about skin lightening, and there I, you showed about some ads in the book where they're warning people about that. But on the other hand, you have now folks like, I guess, Anne Hathaway and other folks saying it's proud to be pale. Yeah. And, you know, in a, in a way that's good because a lot of people with light skin who were going out in the sun and getting a natural tan were causing themselves tremendous skin damage because naturally very lightly pigmented skin doesn't have a lot of protective melanin in it. And so when people try to get a tan, it usually causes a tremendous amount of damage to the skin, huge amounts of premature aging and other problems. And so when these very light people are saying, I'm proud to be pale, their thing is, I don't want to go out and get a tan because it's going to injure my skin. I'm proud to be as I am. And I think that's a good message. And I wish 
everyone, regardless of their color, would just say, I'm proud to be as I am. Whether you're really light, in the middle, really dark, I'm proud to be as I am. Yes, that's a great message. And we have a caller on the line, uh, Professor Jablonski. Let's see if this person's still on. Are you on, caller? Hello? Yes, sir. Just listening in. Yes, sir. I'm just listening Yeah, you have in. a question? No, sir, I don't. Oh, okay. Just listening. Okay. Thanks a lot. Okay. I guess he he didn't have a question. He just wanted to listen. Yeah, that's, that's, okay. technical, that's fine. There's some technical thing with um, the blog talk radio, I should say, Professor Jablonski, where people can listen somehow on their phone and it's, it picks up like they want to call in. Oh, right. So I have a lot of <laughs> listeners sometimes who. So that you know, but they're interested. That's the main thing. That's so we can cool. conclude. Fine. We can conclude this uh, interview, and, and really, I'm just honored and just happy to have you on here. And what do you, you know? You've mentioned what you want folks to get out of the book, but what do you, what do you see in the next? I was going to say five years. The next year, do you see any well, changes well, as far as the issue of race, or just is it just going to just prod along until something well, happens you know, again and people? Uh-huh. Go ahead. In 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 the United States, it, it is really hard to get talk about color and race onto the front burner. We have had, you know, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, uh, and before that, you know, in 2013, Trayvon Martin. You know, I don't know what it's going to take for this to be more than just a one-week news item or a two-week news item. What we need is for a few very respected politicians and scholars to say this means we have to look at this seriously. We need a national discussion on race, and we can't put it off one moment longer. I would like, I mean, my hope, to be honest, is that this would come from our president, In his last two years, he has the ideal opportunity to convene a national conversation on race. And I wish that this could happen, because if it had the the seal of the President of the United States, we might actually get somewhere over the next five years. And I I agree with you on that one, Professor Jablonski. But on the other hand, President Bill Clinton did try that. And you remember in, what, 96, yeah. 97? Yeah. And it kind of petered out. Well, it peters out because there are so many political forces in the country that want it to right. peter out. And and so this needs to be, you know, a powerful and eventually a very decentralized movement where we basically have, you know, community dialogues in every community in every school this becomes something that is not just a you know a tiny news item for two weeks of the year it is right. something that is that is part of our nation's curriculum that is the top priority that is ahead of defense that is ahead of you know economic considerations that is ahead of the latest you know unemployment figures or whatever that this is something that becomes part, really, of the national curriculum. You know, I I spent a lot of time in South Africa, and that's an exceptional country in that they're a young democracy. They've only 
sort of been been free of the shackles of apartheid for 20 years. But what they do in South Africa, or what they did for many years, was actually have this so-called truth and reconciliation That's committee. Right. You know, right. now that that the kernel of that idea was so powerful. We should have had that after the conclusion of slavery at the end of the Civil War. We didn't. But it's never too late to convene something like that in this country. And I guess that is one of my hopes. That's a big hope, but I think that is doable. The other thing that is, is doable, I think the other thing that is doable is that we can begin to make changes to our educational system. We can begin to make changes to our textbooks and to the to the the kinds of media that our children are exposed to so that kids will learn about skin color, so that they will learn the truth about slavery, so that they will learn a little bit about Immanuel Kant and what weird and and retrograde ideas he had, that he was wrong. In other words, this can be conveyed to, let's say, middle school students in a module on race a module on skin color and race wouldn't that be great you know as, a, as a chapter you know in a in a in a middle school textbook this is something that would help because if our children are educated even a little bit differently that will move the needle and that's what it's going to take and professor jablonski i am just honored and just you know i really enjoyed this dialogue i wish we could do it in, on and on all night because it's needed, and I hope other folks will pick up the book, Living Color, The Biological and Social Meaning of Skin Color. It is on the University of California Press. And Dr. Nina Jablonski, I want to thank you for being on again. hope to talk to you again about this, and hopefully one day we won't have to put books like this out, but I guess until things change, we'll have to just keep talking about this issue. And I think it's really important not to lose the energy because right. you know, I know from from the, the the young people especially that I'm in contact with that as soon as as that knowledge is, is you know, in their hearts and minds, it changes their lives. So I think it's our responsibility to keep up that, that energy of education, carry that torch, keep going, don't lose faith and we will change the world, one mind, one heart at a time. That's so great. Thank you so much, Professor Jablonski. You've done a great job. Thank you so much for being on this evening. It's a pleasure, Greg. Good luck. Happy New Year. Same to you. Happy New Year. And again, that was Professor Nina G. Jablonski. The book is Living Color, the Biological and Social Meaning of Skin Color. I urge you. I urge you more than any any book that I've listed on this show and other shows I've done over the years, over the past, what, 13 or so years now, to get this book. I mean, this is the key to what's going on in the world, has been going on for the past 10,000 or so years. Again, it's Living Color, the Biological and Social Meaning of Skin Color by Professor Nina G. Jablonski. And, you know, I mean, this we're talking this... Um, this weekend, although on the Root and Root Show, we constantly talk about the issues of race and African-American history. But a lot of folks 
They perk up this weekend because it's celebrating the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King. And I'm going to be, you know, tomorrow we're going to do a show about the movie Selma. So I want you to stick stick around for that tomorrow evening. But right now I'm going to do one of his speeches, uh, Where Do We Go From Here? And it's apropos to what we were just talking about as far as the issue of race and skin color. Where do we go from here? So let's hear Dr. King and where do we go from here on the Root and Root Show? Dr. Abernathy, our distinguished vice president, fellow delegates to this, the 10th annual session of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, my brothers and sisters from not only all over the South, but from all over the United States of America. Ten years ago, during the piercing chill of a January day and on the heels of the year-long Montgomery bus boycott, a group of approximately 100 Negro leaders from across the South assemble in this church and agreed on the need for an organization to be formed that could serve as a channel through which local protest organizations in the South could coordinate their protest activities. It was this meeting that gave birth to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. When our organization was formed ten years ago, racial segregation was still a structured part of the architecture of Southern society. Negroes with the pangs of hunger and the anguish of thirst were denied access to the average lunch counter. The downtown restaurants were still off-limits for the black man. Negroes burdened with the fatigue of travel were still barred from the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities. Negro boys and girls in dire need of recreational activities were not allowed to inhale the fresh air of the big city parks. Negroes in desperate need of allowing their mental buckets to sink deep into the wells of knowledge were confronted with a firm no when they sought to use the city library. Ten years ago, legislative halls of the South were still ringing loud with such words as interposition and nullification. All types of conniving methods were still being used to keep the Negro from becoming a registered voter.
A decade ago, not a single Negro entered the legislative chambers of the South except as a porter or chauffeur. Ten years ago, all too many Negroes were still harrowed by day and haunted by night by a corroding sense of fear and a nagging sense of nobodiness. But things are different now. In assault after assault, we cause the sagging walls of segregation to come tumbling down. During this era, the entire edifice of segregation was profoundly shaken. This is an accomplishment whose consequences are deeply felt by every Southern Negro in his daily life. It is no longer possible to count the number of public establishments that are open to Negroes. Ten years ago, Negroes seemed almost invisible to the larger society, and the facts of their harsh lives were unknown to the majority of the nation. But today, civil rights is a dominating issue in every state, crowding the pages of the press and the daily conversation of white Americans. In this decade of change, the Negro stood up and confronted his oppressor. He faced the bullies and the guns, the dogs and the tear gas. He put himself squarely before the vicious mobs and moved with strength and dignity toward them and decisively defeated them. The courage with which he he confronted enraged mobs dissolved the stereotype of the grinning, submissive Uncle Tom. He came out of his struggle integrated only slightly in the external society, but powerfully integrated within. This was a victory that had to precede all other gains. In short, over the last ten years, the Negro decided to straighten his back up, realizing that a man cannot ride your back unless it is bent. We made our, we made our government write new laws to alter Some of the cruelest injustices that affected us, we made an indifferent and unconcerned nation rise from lethargy and subpoenaed its conscience to appear before the judgment seat of morality on the whole question of civil rights. We gain manhood in the nation that had always called us boy. It would be hypocritical indeed if I allowed modesty to forbid my saying 
that SCLC stood at the forefront of all of the watershed movements that brought these monumental changes in the South. For this we can feel a legitimate pride. But in spite of a decade of significant progress, the problem is far from solved. The deep rumbling of discontent in our cities is indicative of the fact that the plant of freedom has grown only a bud and not yet a flower. Before discussing the awesome responsibilities that we face in the days ahead, let us take an inventory of our programmatic action and activities over the past year. Last year, as we met in Jackson, Mississippi, we were painfully aware of the struggle of our brothers in Grenada, Mississippi. After living for a hundred or more years under the yoke of total segregation, the Negro citizens of this northern Delta hamlet banded together in nonviolent warfare against racial discrimination under the leadership of our affiliate chapter and organization there. The fact of this non-destructive rebellion was as spectacular as its results. In a few short weeks, the Grenada County Movement challenged every aspect of the society's exploitive life. Stores which denied employment were boycotted. Voter registration increased by thousands. We can never forget the courageous action of the people of Grenada who moved our nation and its federal courts to powerful action in behalf of school integration, giving Grenada one of the most integrated school systems in America. The battle is far from over, but the black people of Grenada have achieved 40 of 53 demands through their persistent nonviolent efforts. Slowly but surely, our Southern affiliates continued their building and organizing. In 79 counties conducted voter registration drives, while double that number carried on political education and get out the vote efforts. In spite of press opinions, our staff is still overwhelmingly a Southern-based staff. 105 persons have worked across the South under the direction of Jose Williams. What used to be primarily a voter registration staff is actually a multifaceted program dealing with the total life of the community from farm cooperatives, business development, tutorials, credit unions, etc. Especially to be commended are those 99 communities and their staffs which maintain regular mass meetings throughout the year. Our citizenship education program continues to lay the solid foundation of adult education and 
community organization upon which all social change must ultimately rest. This year, 500 local leaders received training at Dorchester and Penn Community Centers through our citizenship education program. They were trained in literacy, consumer education, planned parenthood, and many other things. And this program, so ably directed by Mrs. Dorothy Cotton, Mrs. Septima Clark, and their staff of eight persons, continues to cover ten southern states. Our auxiliary feature of CEP is the aid which they have given to poor communities, poor counties, in receiving and establishing OEO projects. With the competent professional guidance of our marvelous staff member, Ms. Muson Lee, Lowndes and Wilcox counties in Alabama have pioneered in developing outstanding poverty programs totally controlled and operated by residents of the area. Perhaps the area of greatest concentration of my efforts has been in the cities of Chicago and Cleveland. Chicago has been a wonderful proving ground for our work in the North. There have been no earth-shaking victories, but neither has there been failure. Our open housing marches, which finally brought about an agreement, which actually caused the power structure of Chicago to capitulate to the civil rights movement, these marches and the agreement have finally begun to pay off. After the season of delay around election periods, the Leadership Conference, organized to meet our demands for an open city, has finally begun to implement the programs agreed to last summer. But this is not the most important aspect of our work. As a result of our tenant union organizing, we have begun a $4 million rehabilitation project which will renovate deteriorating buildings and allow their tenants the opportunity to own their own homes. This pilot project was the inspiration for the new home ownership bill which Senator Percy introduced in Congress only recently. The most dramatic success in Chicago has been Operation Breadbasket. Through Operation Breadbasket, we have now achieved for the Negro community of Chicago more than 2,200 new jobs with an income of approximately $18 million a year, new income to the Negro community. Not only have we gotten jobs through Operation Breadbasket in Chicago, there was another area through this economic program, and that was the development of financial institutions which were controlled by Negroes and which were sensitive 
to problems of economic deprivation of the Negro community. The two banks in Chicago that were interested in helping Negro businessmen were largely unable to loan much because of limited assets. Hilo, one of the chain stores in Chicago, agreed to maintain substantial accounts in the two banks, thus increasing their ability to serve the needs of the Negro community. And I can say to you today that as a result of Operation Breadbasket in Chicago, both of these Negro-operated banks have now more than double their assets, and this has been done in less than a year by the work of Operation Breadbasket. In addition, the ministers learned that Negro scavengers had been deprived of significant accounts in the ghetto. Whites control even the garbage of Negroes. Consequently, the chain stores agreed to contract with Negro scavengers to service at least the stores in Negro areas. Negro insect and rodent exterminators, as well as janitorial services, were likewise excluded from major contracts with uh, chain stores. The chain stores also agreed to utilize these services. It also became apparent that chain stores advertised only rarely in Negro-owned community newspapers. This area of neglect was also negotiated, giving community newspapers regular, substantial accounts. And finally, the ministers found that Negro contractors, from painters to masons, from electricians to excavators, had also been forced to remain small by the monopolies of white contractors. Breadbasket negotiated agreements on new construction and rehabilitation work for the chain stores. These several interrelated aspects of economic development all based on the power of organized consumers hold great possibilities for dealing with the problems of Negroes in other northern cities. The kinds of requests made by Breadbasket in Chicago can be made not only of chain stores but of almost any major industry in any city in the country. And so Operation Breadbasket has a very simple program, but a powerful one. It simply says, if you respect my dollar, you must respect my person. It simply says that we will no longer spend our money where we cannot get substantial jobs. Cleveland, Ohio, a group of ministers have formed an Operation Breadbasket through our program there and have moved against a major dairy company. Their requests include jobs advertising in Negro newspapers and depositing funds in Negro financial institutions. This effort resulted in something marvelous. 
I went to Cleveland just last week to sign the agreement with CO-Test. We went to get the facts about their employment. We discovered that they had 442 employees and only 43 were Negroes. Yet the Negro population of Cleveland is 35% of the total population. They refused to give us all of the information that we requested. And we said, in substance, Mr. Siltes, we're sorry. We aren't going to burn your store down. We aren't going to throw any bricks in the window. But we are going to put picket signs around. And we are going to put leaflets out. And we are going to our pulpits and tell them not to sell Siltes products. And not to purchase Siltes products. We did that. Went through the churches, Reverend Dr. Hoover, who pastors the largest church in Cleveland, who's here today, and all of the ministers got together and got behind this program. We went to every store in the ghetto and said, you must take seal test product off of your counters. If not, we're going to boycott your whole store. A&P refused. We put picket lines around A&P. They have a hundred and some stores in Cleveland. And we picketed A&P and closed down 18 of them in one day. Nobody went in A&P. The next day, Mr. A&P was calling on us, and Bob Brown, who is here on our board, and who uh, is a public relations man representing a number of firms came in. They called him in because he uh, works for A&P also, and they didn't know he worked for us too. <laughs> Bob Brown sat down with A&P, and he said, they said, now, Mr. Brown, what would you advise us to do? He said, I would advise you to take seal test product off, uh, products off of all of your counters. A&P agreed next day not only to take seal test products off of the counters in the ghetto, but off of the counters of every store, A&P store in Cleveland, and they said to seal test, if you don't reach an agreement with SCLC and Operation Breadbasket, we will take seal test products off of every A&P store in the state of Ohio the next day. <laughs> the next day, the seal test people were talking nice. They were very humble. And I am proud to say that I went to Cleveland just last Tuesday, and I sat down with the seal test people and some 70 ministers from Cleveland, and we signed the agreement. This effort resulted in a number of jobs which will bring almost $500,000 of new income to the Negro community a year. We also said to seal test, the problem that we face is that the ghetto is a domestic colony that's constantly drained without being replenished. You're always telling us to lift ourselves by our own bootstraps, and yet we are being robbed every day. Put something back in the ghetto. So along with our demand for jobs, we said we also demand that you put money in the Negro Savings and Loan Association and that you take ads, advertise in the Cleveland Paul Call and Post, the Negro newspaper. 
So along with the new jobs, CLTS has now deposited thousands of dollars in the Negro Bank of Cleveland and has already started taking ads in the Negro newspaper in that city. This is the power of Operation Breadbasket. Now, for fear you may feel that it's limited to Chicago and Cleveland, let me say to you that we've gotten even more than that in Atlanta, Georgia. Breadbasket has been equally successful in the South. Here, the emphasis has been divided between governmental employment and private industry. And while I do not have time to go into the details, I want to commend the men who have been working with it here, the Reverend Bennett, the Reverend Joe Boone, the Reverend J.C. Ward, Reverend Dorsey, Reverend Gray, and I could go on down the line. And they have stood up along with all of the other ministers. But here is the story that's not printed in the newspapers in Atlanta. As a result of Operation Breadbasket, over the last three years, we have added about $25 million of new income to the Negro community every year. Now, as you know, Operation Breadbasket has now gone national in the sense that we had a national conference in Chicago and agreed to launch a nationwide program, which you will hear more about. Finally, SCLC has entered the field of housing. Under the leadership of Attorney James Robinson, we have already contracted to build 152 units of low-income housing with apartments for the elderly on a choice downtown Atlanta site under the sponsorship of Ebenezer Baptist Church. This is the first project. This is the first project of a proposed Southwide Housing Development Corporation as we hope to develop in conjunction with SCLC. And through this corporation, we hope to build housing from Mississippi to North Carolina using Negro workmen, Negro architects, Negro attorneys, and Negro financial institutions throughout. And it is our feeling that in the next two or three years, we can build right here in the South $40 million worth of new housing for Negroes and with millions and millions of dollars in income coming to the Negro community. Now, there are many other things that I could tell you, but time is passing. This, in short, is an account of SCLC's work over the last year. It is a record of which we can all be proud. With all the struggle and all the achievements, we must face the fact, however, that the Negro still lives in the basement of the great society. He is still at the bottom despite the few who have penetrated to slightly higher levels. Even where the door has been forced partially open, mobility for the Negro is still sharply restricted. There is often no bottom at which to start, 
And when there is, there's almost no room at the top. In consequence, Negroes are still impoverished aliens in an affluent society. They are too poor even to rise with the society, too impoverished by the ages to be able to ascend by using their own resources. The Negro did not do this himself. It was done to him. For more than half of his American history, he was enslaved. Yet he built the spanning bridges, the grand mansions, the study docks, and stout factories of the South. His unpaid labor made cotton king and established America as a significant nation in international commerce. Even after his release from chattel slavery, the nation grew over him, submerging him. It became the richest, most powerful society in the history of man. But it left the Negro far behind. And so we still have a long, long way to go before we reach the promised land of freedom. Yes, we have left the dusty soils of Egypt. And we have crossed the Red Sea that had for years been hardened by a long and piercing winter of massive resistance. But before we reach the majestic shores of the Promised Land, there will still be gigantic mountains of opposition ahead and prodigious hilltops of injustice. We still need some Paul revered of conscience to alert every hamlet in every village of America that revolution is still at hand. Yes, we need a chart. We need a compass. Indeed, we need some north star to guide us into a future shrouded with impenetrable uncertainties. Now, in order to answer the question, where do we go from here, which is our theme, we must first honestly recognize where we are now. When the Constitution was written, a strange formula to determine taxes and representation declared that the Negro was 60% of a person. Today, another curious formula seems to declare he is 50% of a person. Of the good things in life, the Negro has approximately one-half those of whites. Of the bad things of life, he has twice those of whites. Thus, half of all Negroes live in substandard housing, and Negroes have half the income of whites. When we turn to the negative experiences of life, the Negro has a double share. There are twice as many unemployed. The rate of infant mortality among Negroes is double that of whites. There are twice as many Negroes dying in Vietnam as whites in proportion to their size in the population. In other spheres, the figures are equally alarming. In elementary schools, Negroes lag one to three years behind whites, and their segregated schools receive substantially less money per student than the white schools. 
one-twentieth as many Negroes as whites attend college. Of employed Negroes, 75 percent hold menial jobs. This is where we are. Where do we go from here? First, we must massively assert our dignity and worth. We must stand up amid a system that still oppresses us and develop an unassailable and majestic sense of values. We must no longer be ashamed of being black. The job of arousing manhood within a people that have been taught for so many centuries that they are nobody is not easy. Even semantics have conspired to make that which is black seem ugly and degrading. In Roger's thesaurus, there are some 120 synonyms for blackness, and at least 60 of them are offensive. Such words as blot, sup, grim, devil, and foul. There are some 134 synonyms for whiteness, and all are favorable, expressed in such words as purity, cleanliness, chastity, and innocence. A white lie is better than a black lie. The most degenerate member of a family is the black sheep. Arthur Davis has suggested that maybe the English language should be reconstructed so that teachers will not be forced to teach the Negro child 60 ways to despise himself and thereby perpetuate his false sense of inferiority and the white child 134 ways to adore himself and thereby perpetuate his false sense of superiority. tendency to ignore the Negro's contribution to American life and strip him of his personhood is as old as the earliest history books and as contemporary as the morning's newspaper. To upset, offset this cultural homicide, the Negro must rise up with an affirmation of his own Olympian manhood. Any movement for the Negro's freedom that overlooks this necessity is only waiting to be buried. As long as the mind is enslaved, the body can never be free. Psychological freedom, a firm sense of self-esteem, is the most powerful weapon against the long night of physical slavery. No Lincolnian emancipation proclamation. No Johnsonian civil rights bill can totally bring this kind of freedom. The Negro will only be free when he reaches down to the inner depths of his own being and signs with the pen and ink of assertive manhood his own emancipation proclamation. With a spirit straining toward true self-esteem, the Negro must boldly throw off the manacles of self-abnegation and say to himself and to the world, I am somebody. I am a person. I am a man with dignity and honor. I have a rich and noble history. However painful and exploited that history has been. Yes, I was a slave through my foreparents. 
And now I'm not ashamed of that. I'm ashamed of the people who were so sinful to make me a slave. Yes. Yes, we must stand up and say, I'm black, but I'm black and beautiful. This This self-affirmation is the black man's need made compelling by the white man's crimes against him. Now another basic challenge is to discover how to organize our strength into economic and political power. No one can deny that the Negro is in dire need of this kind of legitimate power. Indeed, one of the great problems that the Negro confronts is his lack of power. From the old plantations of the South to the newer ghettos of the North, the Negro has been confined to a life of voicelessness and powerlessness, stripped of the right to make decisions concerning his life and destiny. He has been subject to the authoritarian and sometimes whimsical decisions the white power structure, the plantation, and the ghetto were created by those who had power both to confine those who had no power and to perpetuate their powerlessness. Now, the problem of transforming the ghetto, therefore, is a problem of power, a confrontation between the forces of power demanding change and the forces of power dedicated to the preserving of the status quo. Now, power properly understood is nothing but the ability to achieve purpose. It is the strength required to bring about social, political, and economic change. Walter Ruther defined power one day. He said, power is the ability of a labor union like UAW to make the most powerful corporation in the world, General Motors, say yes when it wants to say no. That's power. Now, a lot of us are preachers, and all of us have our moral convictions and concerns, and so often we have problems with power. There is nothing wrong with power. Power is used correctly. You see, uh, what happened uh, is that some of our philosophers got off base. And one of the great problems of history is that the concepts of love and power have usually been contrasted as opposites, polar opposites. So that love is identified with a resignation of power and power with a denial of love. It was this misinterpretation that caused uh, the philosopher Nietzsche, who is the philosopher of the will to power, to reject the Christian concept of love. It was the same misinterpretation which induced Christian theologians to reject Nietzsche's philosophy of the will to power in the name of the Christian idea of love. Now, we got to get this thing right. What is needed is a realization 
that power without love is reckless and abusive and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice and justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. This is what we must see as we move on. Now what has happened is that we've had it wrong and mixed up in our country. This has led Negro Americans in the past to seek their goals through love and moral suasion devoid of power, and white Americans to seek their goals through power devoid of love and conscience. It is leading a few extremists today to advocate for Negroes the same destructive and conscienceless power that they have justly abhorred in whites. It is precisely this collision of immoral power with powerless morality which constitutes the major crisis of our time. We must develop progress, or rather the program, and I can't stay on this long, that will drive the nation to, to a guaranteed annual income. Now, early in the century, this proposal would have been greeted with ridicule and denunciation as destructive of initiative and responsibility. At that time, economic status was considered the measure of the individual's abilities and talents. And in the thinking of that day, the absence of worldly goods indicated a want of industrious habits and moral fiber. We've come a long way in our understanding of human motivation and of the blind operation of our economic system. Now we realize that dislocations in the market operation of our economy and the prevalence of discrimination thrust people into idleness and bind them in constant or frequent unemployment against their will. The poor are less often dismissed, I hope, from our conscience today by being branded as inferior and incompetent. We also know that no matter how dynamically the economy develops and expands, it does not eliminate all poverty. The problem indicates that our emphasis must be twofold. We must create full employment or we must create incomes. People must be made consumers by one method or the other. Once they are placed in this position, we need to be concerned that the potential of the individual is not wasted. New forms of work that enhance the social good will have to be devised for those for whom traditional jobs are not available. In 1879, Henry George anticipated this state of affairs when he wrote in Progress and Poverty, the fact is that the work which improves the condition of mankind, the work which extends knowledge and increases power and enriches literature and elevates thought, is not done to secure living. It is not the work of slaves driven to that task either by the task, of that of a taskmaster, or by animal necessities. It is the work of men who somehow find a form of work that brings a security for its own sake. In a state of society where want is abolished, work of this sort could be enormously increased. 
We are likely to find that the problem of housing, education, instead of preceding the elimination of poverty, will themselves be affected if poverty is first abolished. The poor transformed into purchasers will do a great deal on their own to alter housing decay. Negroes who have a double disability will have a greater effect on discrimination when they have the additional weapon of cash to use in their struggle. Beyond these advantages, a host of positive psychological changes inevitably will result from widespread economic security. The dignity of the individual will flourish when the decisions concerning his life are in his own hands, when he has the assurance that his income is stable and certain, and when he knows that he has the means to seek self-improvement Personal conflicts between husband, wife, and children will diminish when the unjust measurement of human worth on a scale of dollars is eliminated. Now our country can do this. John Kenneth Galbraith said that a guaranteed annual income could be done for about $20 billion a year. And I say to you today that if our nation can spend $35 billion a year to fight an unjust evil war in Vietnam and $20 billion to put a man on the moon. It can spend billions of dollars to put God's children on their own two feet right here on earth. Now let me rush on to say we must reaffirm our commitment to nonviolence. I want to stress this. The futility of violence in the struggle for racial justice has been tragically etched in all the recent Negro riots. Now, yesterday I tried to analyze the riots and deal with the causes for them. Today I want to give the other side. There's something, something painfully sad about a riot. One sees screaming youngsters and angry adults fighting hopelessly and aimlessly against impossible odds. Deep down within them you perceive a desire for self-destruction, a kind of suicidal longing. Occasionally Negroes contend that the 19... 65 Watts riot and the other riots in various cities represented effective civil rights action. But those who express this view always end up with stumbling words when asked what concrete gains have been won as a result. At best, the riots have produced a little additional anti-poverty money allotted by frightened government officials and a few water sprinklers to cool the children of the ghettos. It is something like improving the food in the prison while the people remain securely incarcerated behind bars. Nowhere have the riots won any concrete improvement, such as have the organized protest demonstrations. When one tries to pin down advocates of violence, as to what acts would be effective, the answers are blatantly illogical. Sometimes they talk of overthrowing racist state and local governments, and they talk about guerrilla warfare. 
They fail to see that no internal revolution has ever succeeded in overthrowing a government by violence unless the government had already lost the allegiance and effective control of its armed forces. Anyone in his right mind knows that this will not happen in the United States. In a violent racial situation, the power structure has the local police, the state troopers, the National Guard, and finally the army to call on, all of which are predominantly white. Furthermore, few, if any, violent revolutions have been successful unless the violent minority had the sympathy and support of the non-resisting majority. Castro may have had only a few Cubans actually fighting with him and up in the hills, but he would have never overthrown the Batista regime unless he had had the sympathy of the vast majority of Cuban people. It is perfectly clear that a violent revolution on the part of American blacks would find no sympathy and support from the white population and very little from the majority of the Negroes themselves. This is no time for romantic illusions and empty philosophical debates about freedom. This is a time for action. What is needed is a strategy for change a tactical program that will bring the Negro into the mainstream of American life as quickly as possible. So far, this has only been offered by the nonviolent movement. Without recognizing this, we will end up with solutions that don't solve, answers that don't answer, and explanations that don't explain. And so I say to you today that I still stand by nonviolence. And I'm still convinced. And I'm still convinced that it is the most potent weapon available to the Negro in his struggle for justice in this country. And the other thing is I'm concerned about a better world. I'm concerned about justice, I'm concerned about brotherhood, I'm concerned about truth. And when one is concerned about that, he can never advocate violence. For through violence you may murder a murderer, but you can't murder murder. Through violence you may murder a liar, but you can't establish truth. Through violence you may murder a hater, but you can't murder hate through violence. Darkness can not put out darkness. Only light can do that. And I say to you, I've also decided to stick with love. But I know that love is ultimately the only answer to mankind's problems. And I'm going to talk about it everywhere I go. I know it isn't popular to talk about it in some circles today. I'm not talking about emotional bosh when I talk about love. I'm talking about a strong, demanding love. But I have seen too much hate. I've seen too much hate on the faces of sheriffs in the South. I've seen hate on the faces of too many Klansmen and too many white citizens, counselors in the South. 
to want to hate myself because every time I see it, I know that it does something to their faces and their personalities. And I say to myself that hate is too great a burden to bear. I have decided to love it. If you are seeking the highest good, I think you can find it through love. And the beautiful thing is that we aren't moving wrong when we do it. Because John was right, God is love. He who hates does not know God. But he who loves has the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality. And so I say to you today, my friends, that you may be able to speak with the tongues of men and angels. You may have the eloquence of articulate speech, but if you have not love, it means nothing. Yes, you may have the gift of prophecy. You may have the gift of scientific prediction and understand the behavior of molecules. You may break into the storehouse of nature and bring forth many new insights. Yes, you may ascend to the heights of academic achievement so that you have all knowledge. And you may boast of your great institutions of learning and the boundless extent of your degrees, but if you have not love, all of these mean absolutely nothing. You may even give your goods to feed the poor. You may bestow great gifts to charity. You may tower high in philanthropy. But if you have not love, your charity means nothing. You may even give your body to be burned and die the death of a martyr, and your spilled blood may be a symbol of honor for generations yet unborn. And thousands may praise you as one of history's greatest heroes. But if you have not love... Your blood was spilt in vain. What I'm trying to get you to see this morning is that a man may be self-centered in his self-denial and self-righteous in his self-sacrifice. His generosity may feed his ego and his piety may feed his pride. So without love, benevolence becomes egotism and martyrdom becomes spiritual pride. I want to say to you as I move to my conclusion, as we talk about where do we go from here, we must honestly face the fact that the movement must address itself to the question of restructuring the whole of American society. There are 40 million poor people here. One day we must ask the question, why are there 40 million poor people in America? When you begin to ask that question, you're raising a question about the economic system, about a broader distribution of wealth. When you ask that question, you begin to question the capitalistic economy. And I'm simply saying that more and more, we've got to begin to ask questions about the whole society. We are called upon to help the discouraged beggars in life's marketplace. But one day we must come to see that an edifice 
which produces beggars needs restructuring. It means that questions must be raised. You see, my friends, when you deal with this, you begin to ask the question, who owns the oil? You begin to ask the question, who owns the iron ore? You begin to ask the question, why is it that people have to pay water bills in a world that's two-thirds water? These are words that must be said. Now, don't think you have me in a bind today. I'm not talking about communism. What I'm talking about is far beyond communism. My inspiration didn't come from Karl Marx. My inspiration didn't come from Engels. My inspiration didn't come from Trotsky. My inspiration didn't come from Lenin. Yes, I read Communist Manifesto and Das Kapital a long time ago. And I saw that maybe Marx didn't follow Hegel enough. He took his dialectics, but he left out his idealism and his spiritualism, and he went over to a German philosopher by the name of Feuerbach and took his materialism and made it into a system that he called dialectical materialism. I have to reject that. What I'm saying to you this morning, communism forgets that life is individual. Capitalism forgets that life is social. The kingdom of brotherhood is found neither in the thesis of communism nor the antithesis of capitalism, but in a higher synthesis. It's found in a higher synthesis that come combines the truths of both. Now when I say question in the whole society, it means ultimately coming to see that the problem of racism, the problem of economic exploitation, and the problem of war are all tied together. These are the triple evils that are interrelated. And if you will let me be a preacher just a little bit. One day, one night a juror came to Jesus and he wanted to know what he could do to be saved. Jesus didn't get bogged down on the kind of isolated approach of what you shouldn't do. Jesus didn't say, now, Nicodemus, you must stop lying. He didn't say, Nicodemus, now, you must not commit adultery. He didn't say, now, Nicodemus, you must stop cheating if you're doing that. He didn't say, Nicodemus, you must stop drinking liquor if you're doing that excessively. He said something altogether different because Jesus realized something basic. That if a man will lie, he will steal. And if a man will steal, he will kill. So instead of just getting bogged down on one thing, Jesus looked at him and said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. 
In other words, your whole structure must be changed. A nation that will keep people in slavery for 244 years will thingify them and make them things. And therefore, they will exploit them and poor people generally, economically. And a nation that will exploit economically will have to have foreign investments and everything else. And it will have to use its military might to protect them. All of these problems are tied together. What I'm saying today is that we must go from this convention and say, America, you must be born again. So I conclude by saying today that we have a task and let us go out the divine dissatisfaction. Let us be dissatisfied until America will no longer have a high blood pressure of creeds and an anemia of deeds. Let us be dissatisfied until the tragic walls that separate the outer city of wealth and comfort from the inner city of poverty and despair shall be crushed by the battering rams of the forces of justice. Let us be dissatisfied until they live on the outskirts of hope, brought into the metropolis of daily security. Let us be dissatisfied until slums are cast into the junk heaps of history and every family will live in a decent sanitary home. Let us be dissatisfied until the dark yesterdays of segregated schools will be transformed into bright tomorrows of quality integrated education. Let us be dissatisfied until integration is not seen as a problem, but as an opportunity to participate in the beauty of diversity. Let us be dissatisfied until men and women, however black they may be, will be judged on the basis of the content of their character, not on the basis of the color of their skin. Let us be dissatisfied. Let us be dissatisfied until every state capital be housed by a governor who will do justly who will love mercy and who will walk humbly with his God. Let us be dissatisfied until from every city hall justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Let us be dissatisfied until that day when the lion and the lamb shall lie down together. And every man will sit under his own vine and fig tree, and none shall be afraid. Let us be dissatisfied. And men will recognize that out of one blood, God made all men to dwell upon the face of the earth. Let us be dissatisfied until that day when nobody will shout white power. When nobody will shout black power, but everybody will talk about God's power and human power. 
confess, my friends, that the road ahead will not always be smooth. There will still be rocky paces of frustration and meandering points of bewilderment. There will be inevitable setbacks here and there. There will be those moments when the buoyancy of hope will be transformed into the fatigue of despair. Our dreams will sometimes be shattered and our ethereal hopes blasted. We may again with tear-drenched eyes have to stand before the beard of some courageous civil rights worker whose life will be snuffed out by the dastardly acts of bloodthirsty mobs. But difficult and painful as it is, we must walk on in the days ahead with an audacious faith in the future. And as we continue our chartered course, we may gain consolation from the words so nobly left by that great black Bart, who was also a great freedom fighter of yesterday, James Weldon Johnson. Stony the road we trod, bitter the chastening rod felt in the days when hope Unborn had died, yet with a steady beat have not our weary feet come to the place for which our father sighed. We have come over the way that with tears has been watered. We have come treading our paths through the blood of the slaughtered, out from the gloomy past, till now we stand at last, where the bright gleam of our bright star is cast. Let this affirmation be our ringing cry. It will give us the courage to face the uncertainties of the future. It will give our tired feet new strength as we continue our forward stride toward the city of freedom. When our days become dreary with low hovering clouds of despair, when our nights become darker than a thousand midnights, let us remember... And that is a creative force in this universe working to pull down the gigantic mountains of evil, a power that is able to make a way out of no way and transform dark yesterdays into bright tomorrows. Let us realize that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Let us realize that William Cullen Bryant is right. Truth crushed the earth will rise again. Let us go out realizing that the Bible is right. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. This is our hope for the future. With this faith, we will be able to sing in some not-too-distant tomorrow with a cosmic past tense. We have overcome. We have overcome deep in my heart. I did believe we would overcome. To me, that is my favorite speech of Dr. Martin Luther King. That's where do we go from here? That was from August 1967, and that was at the SCLC 10th Annual Convention. And he talks about economics in there, black power. He talks about being black and beautiful. He talks about war. You don't hear this 
on most of these shows that talk about Dr. King during this time of year, they'll play the I Have a Dream speech and that's it. But study Dr. King, you'll see that it's not about I, I Have a Dream, it's about economics, it's about power. And I think that's that's what got him assassinated, talking about things that, and he says it in another one's speeches that, you know, a minister's not supposed to be talking about international issues or talking about economics, but that's what he did. So I hope you enjoyed that. Again, that was Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., Where Do We Go From Here? It's also a book, too, Where Do We Go From Here? Check that out. And that was from 1967, August 1967, the SCLC 10th Annual Convention. And I want to thank again Dr. Nina G. Jablonski, author of the book Living Color, the Biological and Social Meaning of Skin Color on the University of California Press. And, you know, everything, what she said tied into that speech by Dr. Martin Luther King, and I hope you really enjoyed it. But I'm going to be getting out of here right now. We'll be back tomorrow with the Root and Root Show. And I want to say hi to my friends out there in Colorado and Denver in particular. You'll be doing the Marade this Monday. And I hope this uh, show will get you inspired and the show tomorrow will get you inspired too because you'll be hearing this the next day. So you'll hear tape. But hope you're inspired to go out there and march and think about what Dr. King was really about. Not that I have a dream speech, but other things. Think about that. But again, this is Greg Rashid with the Root and Root Show, and we're going to go out of here today with, I think we'll do more of the impressions, keep on pushing, so we're going to keep on pushing, things don't end, so keep on pushing, go in love and go in peace, and we will see you tomorrow on the Root and Root Show, and we'll be talking about the movie Selma. Keep on pushing